Welcome everyone to the Fiercely Spiritual Podcast. I am your host, Sandra Ray, and I'm delighted this week we have Julie Ryan joining us. And Julie is a psychic and medical intuitive. I can't wait to get into this with her. Julie can sense medical conditions and illnesses, and she can facilitate energy healings. So we're going to talk all about that. And she is also an inventor, entrepreneur, and author. So lots of stuff to dive into. Julie, you're so welcome here with us today. Thank you. I am delighted to be invited and and delighted to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, I love chatting to people like you because you have such a varied background and there's so much I want to dive into. Um, But let's start with how you became a psychic and medical intuitive because I'm dying to learn all about that and hear more about that. Well, uh, as you mentioned, I'm a businesswoman and an inventor. And I, so I say I'm a businesswoman who learned how to do woo-woo and I'm a buffet of psychicness. So we can do medical intuitive stuff. We can talk to your dead grandma. I can scan your cat and do a healing on your pets. We can do past life stuff. We can do whatever. Talk to spirit guides, angels, the whole nine yards. And I teach people around the world how to do all of what I do as well, Sandra. And I am not one of those psychics who's had dead people chasing her since childhood. Or if I did, I didn't know it, let alone what I would have done with that information. I learned how to do all of this. And this is what I teach. So I find that really interesting because I think a lot of people think that you have to be born seeing spirit and, you know, have all these things from um, when you were little. And granted, a lot of us are born with it, but then we forget that we can do this. But I'd love to know your journey in how you came to learn how to do this. Well, you're absolutely right. We're all born with it. We all come in with the hardware and the software. It's just a matter of developing it and then enhancing it once we understand it. And little children, I know you have little ones, little children, they're very intuitive and they're very psychic. And that's why I wrote children's books because I had so many moms around the world say, can you figure out a way that I can talk to my child about about uh, why they're able to communicate with spirit. How do they know these things when this child can't even read yet? I mean, how do they know things that we can corroborate with historic documents? And we've all had this situation where we think of someone and we run into them or they email us or they text us or they call us seemingly out of the blue and we say, oh my gosh, I was just thinking of you. Well, no coincidence there. That's your psychic ability that's at work. And we've all had that experience. So come in with it. How I developed mine was I had a friend, gosh, 30 years ago now, who gave me a book called Anatomy of the Spirit by Carolyn Mace, who called herself a medical intuitive. And I thought, what the heck is that? I had never heard that term before. And at the time, I was in the hospital supply industry and was an inventor and a manufacturer of surgical devices that are still sold throughout the world. I since have sold that company about five years ago. And so I was always involved with helping people from the device side of the equation, but had never heard medical intuitive. So I wanted to know more. And back then, Sandra, we didn't have the internet yet. And I did the old fashioned thing and I went to a bookstore. 
And just to see, because I even thought, well, the bookstore is more likely to have more information on this than perhaps even a library, you know, my local library. So I went to the bookstore and I found this book called Hands of Light by Barbara Brennan. And she's a former NASA physicist who has taken very complex quantum physics language and distilled it so it's understandable to the non-scientific mind. That would be me, non-scientific mind. And so I read her book and it was all about energy healing. And then I wanted to know more. So I called her school and asked if they had anybody in my area that, that was teaching this stuff. And sure enough, they did. And so I studied with that woman for about six years. And she's still my teacher and my mentor. I zap on people all over the world. She's the only one that zaps on me. And uh, here, we, here I am all these years later. So lots of stories about how I was led to do this. And just in the past, a um, little less than five years, uh, since I sold my medical device company, I've, I've really delved into this and it's just really grown and expanded in ways that I hadn't thought of, hadn't planned. And it's been really fun. And how did you find that transition from being an entrepreneur, an inventor, running businesses, to switching to the healing side of things where it's very intuitive. And you could argue that inventing is very intuitive, very creative, um, but the business side of things, it's quite, you know, open your headspace. Um, and, you know, did you find it difficult to switch between the two? No, actually my business experience, my skill sets from business has helped me do this because help me set it up, help me expand it, help me do all of that. And the big difference though, great question is, in business, you have a business plan. Yeah, you're looking at sales, you're looking at other measurables is what they call them. Are you meeting your goals? Is the, are your goals unfolding in a way that's helping the company grow, all that kind of stuff. The other big thing for me too is I've had throughout all my companies and I've started nine companies in five industries in 30 years. So I am a serial entrepreneur. I am a true serial entrepreneur. The big change for me in addition to not having a business plan on this and really just letting it unfold organically is I'm used to having people run divisions for me. Like I had a VP of manufacturing. I had a VP of finance. I had a VP that handled the sales reps, that kind of thing. And with this, it's me. So I have people that, that are assisting me from an operational clerical standpoint, but I'm the one that has to do it. So that's been a really big change for me to, to be able to pivot into, all right, this is what I can do. I really don't need to be working 14 or 15 hour days doing this. So, so it's taught me to set boundaries with this, which has been really an interesting journey for me. And it's a blast. It is the most fun I've ever had. I still have a couple of companies that are on the side that pretty much are running themselves with some help from some people. But I really spend most, of, most if not all of my time doing this. And do you work mainly one-to-one or would you work in groups or how do you format the healings? One-to-one, people all over the world via Zoom or via phone. And I teach them how to do everything that I do 
and they do it in four Saturdays, a couple of hours on each Saturday. And it's so amazing to watch it all unfold for them from all walks of life, from physicians and judges and lawyers and people like that to housewives and plumbers and engineers and everything in between. The only prerequisite to take my class is you have to be able to speak English. That's the only thing that you got to be able to do because that's the only language I speak. So that's, there's that. And then I do occasional, I will do um, like workshops or I'll be involved in summits and things like that. And then I have a radio show that we take the commercials out of and distribute as a podcast. And that's weekly. It's called Ask Download Podcast. And so I'll have people call in. It's on Thursday nights in the middle of the night, your time, but it's eight Eastern in America. And I was just mentioning, I had a couple of people call in last night, one from Spain and one from Germany, and it was the middle of the night when they got up. And so they call and they ask me questions about whatever. Can you scan me medically? Is my dog dying? Can we talk to my deceased husband? I have cancer. Is there anything, any kind of healing that you can do on me? And, and so it's really fun every week because we just never know what the questions are that are going to come up. And last night, I think I had 48 callers. And did you get to chat to all of them? I Oh, no, no. I think I got probably 10 or 11. Okay. That's still a lot. Hours. It's a lot. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot. And and that depends how much time I spend with each person depends on what they have going on and all of that. But yeah, it's really fun. And I know something actually people always ask me when I was doing one-to-one healings was, um, do I feel drained after it? And I used to always say, no, I feel energized because the energy is flowing through me. So is that your experience or how Absolutely. do you feel? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm jazzed afterwards. I'm <laughs> wired. Yes. And, you're, and, that, and that's a really good point too, is I think the people that are trained how to do this, they know how to turn it on and off. And people who just are doing it organically, not to negate their skills. I think their skills are wonderful, but a lot of times you'll hear of psychics or medical intuitives that have to go lay down for two hours. I know of one who's very famous that when he works on somebody, he goes blind for a couple of hours afterwards. And that's, that's just because they don't know how to control their energy. Yeah, it's very important to protect your energy. And also, I think some people use their own personal energy rather than um, sourcing the energy from source um, and letting it flow through them. So you're depleting your own energy rather than letting the energy flow through you like a stream almost. Absolutely. And that's what I teach is that you, it's us in conjunction with spirit. It's spirit working through us and with us. And so that's why I don't edit anything that I get, especially if it's a medical thing, because who am I to decide what somebody needs to hear? I believe if I'm getting the information, I'm supposed to convey it. I'm the messenger. And when you're working with people, is there ever anyone who you can't tune into or that nothing's coming up or there isn't a clear um, sense of what's going on for them? Never. No. Our heads are big satellite dishes and they receive and they transmit frequencies. Every spirit has their own frequency throughout all of their lifetimes. Every thought has its own frequency. So what I find is all you have to do is think of somebody, whether they're a spirit attached to a body or not, it doesn't matter because that we're tuning into that spirit's frequency. So I had a client this morning and she's going through a really rough time with her ex-husband with child stuff going on. And 
we had a conversation with her ex-husband's spirit about it and got information. Funny story too. She wanted to do a, a thing with her spirit guides and her birthday was today. She gave herself a consult with me as her birthday present to herself and all of her spirit guides. There were seven of them that showed up. They all had on birthday hats. It was so funny, Sandra. I've never seen that before. And all the thousands and thousands and thousands of, of, uh, clients with whom I've worked, it, it just cracked me up. I thought that was the cutest thing. You know, That's those brilliant. triangular I, birthday hats with the strap underneath. It was hilarious. It was so, so fun. funny. Yeah. And so you're, so you have a uh, clairvoyance, you see their guides and um, how do you get messages? Is it through clairaudience hearing or seeing or knowing, or what way do you get the information? All of the above. Mm-hmm. I don't differentiate. I'm a visual learner. So information comes into me visually. If I'm scanning somebody or doing an energetic healing on them, I'm like a human MRI. I can see body parts in my mind's eye and I can see broken bones, torn ligaments, viral infections, bacterial infections, cancer that's metastasized, whatever. Oftentimes I'll see things in my mind's eye before they even show up on a CT scan or a PET scan, if like in the, the form of cancer. And then I'll watch a healing occur And sometimes I'll watch a procedure that emulates what I saw in operating rooms for all those decades when I was in that industry. Sometimes I see something removed, something added. Sometimes I see healings that utilize methodologies and devices that haven't been invented yet. And regardless of what I'm seeing in my mind's eye, I'm very descriptive with my client because I want them to be able to envision or at least get a sense of what I'm seeing because it helps integrate the healing into their body. And my analogies sometimes are really hilarious. I may tell somebody a body part looks like a bowl of whipped cream or something crazy like that, but it's just how it comes into me. I can relate. I remember telling somebody once that Homer Simpson popped into my head and that related to something to do with them. So whatever comes up, it's just like, as you said, you have to say it and whether it makes sense or not. Um, Interesting though, you were saying about the instruments. I remember one of my teachers saying during healing, he saw instruments that were very futuristic and um, he felt that it was from a past life, um, which I know you um, deal with as well. So we'll chat a bit about that. But interestingly, at the time, I had always thought past lives would be in the past as we experience like linear past, not realizing that our past life could be you know, hundreds of years from now. Well, concurrent reality is happening all at the same time. Certainly it's feasible. Do we know it's true? Well, we'll find, we'll find out when we go back into non-spirit, into non-physical, into pure spirit, but it's, it's feasible. I, but I have a fun story though about a past life. May I share it with you? That relates to what you just mentioned. I had a gentleman call into my show one time this was a couple of years ago. And he said he wanted to know if he had any past lives that were influencing what he did for a living in this life. And I said, well, what do you do? And he said, I'm an engineer. I said, okay. So I get him, I get him on my radar and how I do past lives, Sandra, is different from anybody else I've ever heard. So I envision myself in this endless hallway with really narrow wall. It's a really narrow hallway and it has very tall ceilings and big square mirrors line the walls from floor to ceiling and each mirror represents a different lifetime 
we'll ask a question and then the mirrors that correlate will come out from the wall as if they're on a hydraulic arm. And then I'll say, show me the one that correlates the most. That one will come out the farthest. And then I envision myself walking into the mirror and I'm shown this scene. It's like I'm watching a mini movie in my head and I'm given where it was, when it was, what the year was, all of that. So long story short, I get I get this situation with this guy. We ask, does he have any past lives that are affecting him being an engineer in this life? And I get this scene in my head as I walk through this mirror of, it looked like a different planet. It looked like a Star Wars set with the tall buildings and I could see the flying vehicles and the flying ships and stuff. And I got that he was in charge of the electrical grid and everything that was powered by electricity that he was in charge of that. And I said, this looks futuristic to me. You know, I'm thinking Star Wars in the future. Well, I got the year was in the 1930s. So it was a past life on another planet. And, and I said to him, you were in charge of all the electrical stuff. I said, what kind of engineer are you? And he said, I'm an, I'm an electrical engineer. I thought, oh, bingo, there you go. That's brilliant. I, I find things like that fascinating. And it proves that we are multi-dimensional beings. We're not just earthbound, that we have other lifetimes, not necessarily on earth, but also on other planets. And I love talking to people like you about this because we can chat and um, often I get looks as if I have five heads when I talk about this stuff with <laughs> others. So it's great to be able to talk freely. Um, and of course, all the listeners are all super into this as well, which is brilliant. Um, so. Well, and along those lines too, I tell people, I laugh, I say, I can't make this stuff up. If I, if I could, I'd be the next JK Rowling and I'd have a billion dollar empire yeah. because this stuff is just so out there. And when it's coming in, you don't even have time to think about it. You're just, what I find, and it sounds like you do the same thing, we're just reporting on what we're getting and it's, the information's coming in so fast that I just say, trust me, I'm not that creative to make all of this stuff up. Yeah, which is fine. Yeah, it's, it's very much, um, I love when, as you described, you're going into like a picture, picture or a scene and exploring it. And um, it's not always very clear at first, I find for me anyway, but it then kind of it comes clearer as you um, get into the energy of it. Um, but what I wanted to also ask you was that um, working with animals, as you mentioned, um, what's the difference between animals and people? Do you find it very different or are there similarities or how does that work? There's similarities. I don't know all the body part names. Like I was working on a horse yesterday with a client and it had some kind of parasitic worm. I mean, these worms were everywhere. It was Oh, it was bizarre. And my daughter-in-law is a veterinarian. And I was talking with her and my son last night. And I, her name is Mallory. And I'm like, Mallory, oh my God, these worms were everywhere in the bone marrow. And, and I kept seeing them in these little capsules. They were like in a little, a little clear capsule. And she said, oh yeah, that's how they survive is they encapsulate themselves. Who knows? I didn't know that. And so the, I don't know what the back knee of a horse is called, but I'll just say, well, it's like their back knee on their left leg. And, and then the owner will know what I'm talking about, or my daughter-in-law will know what I'm talking about. Uh, the big difference between humans and animals, Sandra, is when they're dying. 
And that's what I talk about in Angelic Attendance, my book about what happens as we're transitioning, as we're dying and going back into pure spirit. And what I find with animals and humans is that the spirit exits the body through the top of the head and it holds on to the top of the head and it looks like a bubble that you'd see in a cartoon where the, the character's words or thoughts are. And then with humans, we're surrounded by angels and deceased loved ones and the spirits of deceased pets as well. And those can be farm animals, they can be dogs, cats, birds, snakes, whatever. But with animals, I don't see angels surrounding the animals. I don't see their litter mates, spirits surrounding them like I do with humans. So that's the big difference that I see between the animals and the humans. But communicating with animals is the same as communicating with humans telepathically, being able to scan them, being able to facilitate energetic healings is all the same in my experience. Yeah, it's um, it's such, uh, I suppose, when you can communicate in that way, particularly with animals. I know a friend of mine, her dog was really, really sick recently and the vet couldn't figure out what it was. And they were doing um, all these things and procedures to try and get to the source of it. Um, thankfully, now she's on the mend. But they, you know, just couldn't figure out what it was that was going on. Presumably, that's where you come in. You can go get to the source. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and same with people. I, most of my clients that want me to do a medical scan on them, they've seen multiple doctors or they've gone down multiple roads of therapies or, or different suggestions from doctors, even surgeries and things like that. And they still have symptoms. So they'll come to me and what we'll do is normally reverse engineer their symptoms. And oftentimes I'll have doctors send their patients to me when they can't figure out what's going on. And is the solution always through energy healing or do you find that you're guided to tell them to take certain, I don't know, herbs or change their lifestyle or how does that come through? Great question. Yes, all of the above. I believe that the work that I do is part of the equation in healing and it, I'm the facilitator. So that healing happens on the energetic level, it will integrate into their body. That can happen instantly. It may take days, weeks, months. It may need some kind of complementary care, change in diet, surgery, move if you're living in a moldy home, things like that. And it's always the person's spirit's prerogative to utilize the healing in a way that's going to best facilitate whatever their spirit is exploring. No, no healer and no doctor has the power to heal somebody else. It's we heal ourselves. We act as healers, I believe, as facilitators of energy healing. We act as guides. So we can facilitate healings, but it's actually the person that's doing the healing on themselves always. And the healings that I do, like I said, will integrate into their body or not. Sometimes it's not what the spirit wants to experience. They want to experience exploring this, but they want to also experience what it's like to have whatever their illness or, or medical situation is. It's really fascinating. And I use the analogy a lot, Sandra, about if you think about a surgeon who has two patients back to back and they're both healthy and they're doing this, he's doing the same procedure on both, 
both procedures go beautifully, just absolutely smoothly. One patient heals, one patient doesn't. You know, it's up to that person's spirit. And it, and it all goes, there's always an emotional component. So oftentimes it's a matter of what do you need to give up to heal? Are you willing to give up whatever comes up in order to help yourself heal? It's a really good point. I'm glad you mentioned that as well, because I always say the same, that the healer facilitates the innate healing of the body. Um, you know, we don't even know half the time how the cells are healing. Um, and particularly doctors, they can give medication, but ultimately they don't know how the body is going to heal the healing. The body does the healing itself. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, and also something you touched on, um, what I was going to ask was, is there a benefit to experiencing illness? And you kind of mentioned that, that it may be something that the soul wants to experience to further its learning or um, could you elaborate on that? Certainly, it's always, there's always an emotional component in every med that's in place before any medical condition comes into play. And I think Louise Hay was probably one of the first ones in, in our lifetime anyways, to really put this out there. Certainly it's been known throughout the ages, but I think she's the first one that's really been able to enunciate, okay, if you've got this going on, there's a good chance this is the emotional component. And, and so as part of the healing that I do is I work on whatever body part, I, spirit working through me and with me, is what's happening when I say I on a healing. And, and the last thing that I do, we can fix body parts all day long, but if there's an energy leak, the body's not going to work on full power. And so that's the most important part of the healing as I perceive it. So what I do is, what I picture, Sandra, is uh, the spirit and the body are all made of energy and they're in this container that I call the energy field membrane. It reminds me of really thin, stretchy plastic wrap, the kind you'd get on a tray of chicken breasts from the grocery store. You know how that stuff's thinner and stretchier than the plastic wrap perhaps in our kitchen drawers that we use for, for food, just store it. And when I see a tear or a hole in there, it's causing an energy leak in that membrane and that always precedes any kind of medical condition. Energy leaks are caused by energy blocks, which in turn are a result of some emotional event that's happened either in this lifetime or a past lifetime. So I go into that terror hole and I'm shown a scene again, like what we were talking about with past lives. And I'm given where it was, when it was, a little bit about what happened. It can be something really simple like, somebody called you a bad name when you were little and it hurt your feelings. And we look at that as an adult and we think, well, that, that's no big deal. Well, it was a big deal to your three-year-old little self when it happened. Or it could be something dramatic. One of my favorite stories is I have a client that lives in Guernsey. And I saw this scene of her as a preteen and there was an explosion behind her. And I said, does that mean anything to you? And she said, yeah, I was a victim of an IRA bombing when I was 11. 
I said, okay, that qualifies as dramatic. So it can be anywhere on that spectrum. If it's a past life thing, we'll get where it was, when it was, and then we'll correlate what happened and how, how it correlates to this lifetime. What I'm looking for is not the most dramatic thing, Sandra. I'm looking for where did that energy block start? It reminds me of a little kernel of unpop popcorn. And then it gets into the energy field and then other life events energy builds, builds, builds on top of it and eventually causes a blowout in the membrane. So the body's not working on full power because the spirit is the power source for the body, which is why when somebody dies and their body and their spirit separate, the body doesn't work anymore. It's because it doesn't have a power source. So an analogy I use for this is imagine taking your kids to the pet store to buy a goldfish. They're going to put it in a plastic bag of water in order for you to get it home. So if you have a picture of that in your mind's eye, the fish represents our body. The water represents our spirit because the body's inside the spirit, not the other way around. And the plastic bag represents the energy field membrane. Well, if that plastic bag has a pinhole in it and water is draining out a drop at a time, for a long time, that fish is going to be just fine. But when enough water drains out, that fish is going to be in trouble. And that's what happens to the human body. So we fix the energy field membrane. The body can go back to working on full power. It heals immediately. And then I'll shoot energy through them and they look like a supernova. And I've never seen an energy field membrane rupture after it's been repaired ever. So I think that's the most important part of a healing because if you think about an analogy, getting your car fixed, your car's not running. You take it into the shop. They put a new radiator in it. Okay, all fine and good, but your battery is dead. Your car's still not going to run. So what's the point? And I feel like we can fix body parts all day long, but if the body's not working on full power, it's not going to work properly. It's so true. And I would love to chat about things people can do themselves in order to maintain their energy. Because it comes to a point, and well, I believe that everybody should have some form of energy healing on a regular basis, um, but we can maintain that ourselves in between um, by doing things like meditation, um, drinking plenty of water, getting sleep. What do you recommend uh, people do? All of those things. And then pay attention to how you feel because we, are, we all come in with an internal GPS system. And when we feel badly, that's our spirit saying, hey, you're out of alignment. Look at this from a different perspective. When we feel good or at least neutral, then we know we're in alignment. So if we just pay attention to how we feel, that's 90% of the equation in my mind. And what that does is it keeps our vibration level high. Nobody maintains it all the time until they're dead. I mean, you know, we're here to have the human experience and we need that contrast of this feels bad. And um, so that's how we create what we want when that happens. And, and so I think it's really important to pay attention to what your feelings are. And again, thoughts don't originate in our heads. They originate in the ethers and we pull them in. And then once they're in our body, then we assign an emotion to them. And that's our internal GPS saying, hey, you're on course or you're off course. So I want to touch on that actually just about the thoughts, because I think a lot of us identify with our thoughts and thinks, think that our thoughts are us. And really our thoughts, as you say, don't necessarily, they come from um, you know, universal consciousness. It's just we're on that frequency 
and then we can pull them in when we're on that frequency. So if we raise our frequency, we jump to higher, more positive thoughts. Would that be right in your opinion? Yes, yes. I do this. I came up with this technique that I call the two-minute rule. And here's how it works. When you feel bad, you're to your point, you're on a low frequency. When you feel neutral or good, you're on a high frequency. Well, they're like radio stations. You know how you're listening to classic rock and that's the music they play. Then you're listening to talk radio on another station and that's what they're playing, the shows that are opinions or it's talk. So what we want to do when we feel badly is we want to ask ourselves, is this going to kill me in the next two minutes? We call it the two minute rule. If it is, get out of the street before the truck runs you over. If it's not, you know it's fake. And 99% of our negative thoughts are based in an irrational fear. And they're fake. We're making them up. And we all experience when we have a thought like COVID. Oh my goodness. If I go to the store and I have the cart and the virus is on the cart and I get it on my hand and I touch my face and then it goes up my nose and I get COVID and then there won't be an ambulance and there won't be a bed for, I mean, you're down in this black hole of all this stuff we're making up. So I find that when you use the two minute rule and you make it a habit and you say, is this going to kill me in the next two minutes? And you can use it with anything and everything. It's free and it's convenient. It works anywhere your brain is and your brain's usually with you wherever you are, right? And so is this going to kill me in the next two minutes? No, what it does is it disrupts that frequency where those negative thoughts are. And curiosity is based in love. Curiosity is fun. It feels good. You want to know more. You've immediately raised your vibrational level. And since we live in an attractive universe, when you feel good, most of the time you attract more good feeling things. When you feel badly, you attract more bad feeling things. It's really that simple. Yeah, the two-minute rule sounds like something that everybody can implement. It's something so easy to do. And you're right, because we project our thoughts into the future and we think, well, what if this happens or else something that happened in the past that we can't change, we get depressed over it and we can spend all our time in these states of anxiety or depression where in this very moment, we're missing the beauty of the moment and the beauty of the now. And it's, it's hard to do. Um, but when you practice meditation, mindfulness, it does help you to become aware of what you're thinking and how what you're experiencing emotionally in the moment and then choosing as you said with the two-minute rule or another technique what you want to experience well and i think meditation is a great example of how thoughts don't originate in our heads because when you're meditating you've got all these thoughts coming in from all these places and they say watch them fade away and then other ones will come in and then you know what am i going to fix for dinner do i need to do laundry do I need to, what do I need to do with the kids? What do we need to do at work? And you, and you watch them go in and out so we can control our thoughts. And I believe that's really what meditation, a big, big portion of that's what meditation is all about is to help us train our minds to focus on things that we use our emotions for it to feel good or at least neutral. And when we're feeling badly about something, we can control our thoughts by using, to your point, the two minute rule and other techniques. Yeah. It's, um, it's having that awareness and being committed to it. And I think a lot of the time we start and we have the best of intentions, but then it falls by the wayside when something happens, but we have to keep refocusing and bringing ourselves back to it because the alternative 
is to be in that state of suffering and nobody wants that. And it's not to say that the thoughts are good or bad, but awareness can bring so much to your life when you're aware, oh, I don't have to be in that story that my, that's being fed to me by my left brain, which is just sending all these stories about what's going on, which aren't truth, they're not based in fact. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting. And you can become really curious, have that childlike curiosity about the story that's coming up and really questioning, well, is this truth or is this just something that's going on in my head? Right. Exactly. And, and then again, we go to an attractive universe. You know, when you feel good, most of the time you attract more good feeling things. And it's not a matter of trying to control the thought because you're still in the same frequency. That's why I came up with the two minute rule. You want to break that frequency because there are lots of schools of thought, Sandra, and I know you're aware of them where they'll say, okay, just watch that thought go away and send it love. Well, you're still in the same frequency right? And what are you doing? You're trying to control what's going on in your head. And if you just say, okay, is this going to kill me in the next two minutes? You're able to identify that's a limiting belief caused by an irrational fear that's false. As soon as you disprove it, it negates it, gets rid of it. Yeah. It immediately takes the energy out of it. It does. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Tell me, what is the favorite thing about your work? What is it that you most love about what you do? All the people that I get to meet from all over the world, like you. It's just been so much fun and so fascinating. And, uh, you know, Ryan... I'm one of your I'm one of your sisters, really. And when when I landed in Dublin the first time I went there, and there were all those Ryanair jets everywhere at the airport, I was like, "Oh, these are my people! I'm home!" You know, it was great. So I love that. But yeah, just the people that I get to meet and the the um, teeny weeny weeny little part that I get to play in providing comfort or providing information or or whatever works with spirit working through me and with me is such an honor and a privilege. Where I really feel it a lot too, Sandra, is when I'm working with a family who has a loved one who's dying because I can identify where, how close to death they are. I can communicate with the person who's dying, even if they're not, even if they're not able to verbally communicate anymore. And for families to let me be a part of such an intimate time in their life, which is usually such a difficult and heart-wrenching time. And to be able to convey messages, and that's what my book, Angelic Attendance, is about, is how we're surrounded by angels, deceased loved ones, and the comfort that that knowledge brings to families at such a heart-wrenching time has been such an honor and a privilege for me. And actually, my parish, my priest, John Fallon, who is from the mother country. He is born and raised in Ireland and then came over here after he, after he got a, was ordained. He gives a copy of my book to every family that comes in that's planning a funeral. I have churches all over America of all denominations that use my book in study groups and Bible studies and things like that. I have synagogues that use it. I didn't see that coming. But what I find is as I will get these emails from people who will say, oh my gosh, you know, the comfort in knowing, especially during COVID right now, so many people have lost a loved one who was either in a hospital or a nursing home and they weren't able to be with them 
they died by themselves. And they tell me the comfort that they have, have gotten from knowing they were surrounded by angels and their deceased loved ones is just been monumental for them in their grieving process. And by the way, it had, there's a book called Death is But a Dream written by an MD, PhD named Chris Kerr. And he did university-based research on 1,400 hospice patients, who almost 90% of whom talk about that they're seeing the spirits of deceased loved ones and deceased pets as they're nearing the end of their lives. So it validates everything I talk about from the spiritual perspective in, in angelic attendance. And as you know, I work with the angels and I teach people how to sense their angels. And I love that you've written this book about angelic attendance and that, um, you know, experience as people are transitioning because we don't realize how many angels are around us and how much, um, how much help we have when we're working with the, the angels. It just opens up so much to us because they have all these tools that they can share with us and we're not even aware of it a lot of the time. So my passion is helping people to become aware of that. Right. And the interesting thing about angelic attendance, at the end of every Catholic funeral, Roman Catholic funeral, and I, 12 years of Catholic schools, I mean, I was raised, been, had been to many Catholic funerals. And when the first time I saw this whole scenario unfolding was when my own mother was dying. And I talk about that in the book. And so at her funeral, there's a prayer said at the end of every Catholic funeral called in paradisum, which in Latin is into paradise. And it talks about your loved ones and the angels will greet you and lead you into paradise. And when I was writing the book, Sandra, I did some research just to see where did that originate? Where did that prayer originate? It's either song or it's said at the end of every Catholic funeral. And what I found was it originated as a fifth century Gregorian chant. So I have to believe that since the beginning of time, people have been able to see telepathically what I see. And certainly as we've become more well-educated, we want to be more proof-based. And so some of that has gone by the wayside. But it makes sense to me that maybe it took till the fifth century till there was somebody that was well-educated enough. Back then it was men, and a lot of them were living in a monastery or a synagogue who were the ones that were able to read and write and write down what happened at the end of life. And they came up with this prayer. And I, I truly believe that people have been able to see it throughout mankind. And perhaps it's just something that is just for those of us now where we, we have evolved to the place where we know, okay, we've got the scientific stuff that like with Chris Kerr, when I was talking with him, I said, I love it when science catches up with woo-woo. And that's what happened in this case. And I love you mentioned at the start that your teacher, um, I think you mentioned about her physics background as well, um, which I just, uh, the fact that we're now seeing what we've known probably for a long time, but haven't been able to prove. Um, we're seeing that being proven through the sciences is wonderful because it really does um, give it so much more weight when people realize, oh, actually, this is provable. Right. Well, and how this all came about with me helping people know what's going on when somebody's dying is when I was with my mentor and teacher, when she's doing a healing on me, the, I lay on a table face up and, and my deceased loved ones are on either side 
of the table. And one day this dead Pope showed up and he had the whole Pope outfit on, the hat, the whole nine yards. And I said, I said, well, who are you? You know, imagine St. Patrick, right? With the hat, the pointy hat, not well, the Pope now. And I said, well, who are you? And he said, I'm Clement. And I said, there was a Pope Clement. I never heard of a Pope Clement. <laughs> he laughed and he said, yeah, I was number six. I said, okay, may I help you? And he said, you're supposed to teach the world what happens when somebody's dying because it's been so bastardized through the generations and people are so afraid and there's no reason for them to be afraid. They're surrounded by angels and deceased loved ones. And you can see that, you know, that's true. And I said, yeah, well, I'm not doing that. I'm a businesswoman and I'm not doing that. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, whatever, get on with it basically. And then when I was leaving to go home from her office, I just for kicks, I did a search online with Pope Clement VI. Sandra, he was in office during the Black Plague when two thirds of Europe died. And I thought, seriously, I can't. I never heard of a Pope Clement, let alone no his purpose for the dying and his purpose for the dead. And it literally took me several years to get to the place where I had enough courage to release the book because I was, I was thinking, oh my gosh, people are just going to think I'm nuts and is it going to affect my businesses in a detriment? And where, when I finally got to the place where I said, okay, all right, all right, was I was sitting in mass, John Fallon, Father John Fallon was giving the sermon and he said, wouldn't it be nice if somebody could tell us if angels and our deceased loved ones are really there with us when we're dying? And I was sitting between my husband and my son and I'm getting elbowed by both of them. I'm going, okay, God, really from the pulpit? Okay, okay. And, and so that's how that all came about. And Pope Clement's around all the time. He's just, you know, always prodding me to do something. Brilliant. I love that. And I love that when we have that agreement to do something in a lifetime, that we keep getting those little nudges and hints and proddings, if necessary, to actually go and do it. Um, so, Julie, there's so much more I could talk to you about, but I'm conscious of time. So I want you to share how can people work with you if they're drawn to um, working with you one-to-one? AskJulieRyan.com. Everything's at AskJulieRyan.com. You can access my books there. You can access, you can schedule an appointment. You can schedule, you can enroll for my classes. You can get copies of the podcast, all of that. And I would love if any of your listeners would like to read Angelic Attendance, send me an email at um, AskJulieRyan.com. Just go in on the Ask Julie page and just put Sandra in the notes, and we will send you a digital and an audiobook copy of Angelic Attendance. And if you have children or grandchildren, let me know, and I'll and we'll include a copy of my children's books. Which, by the way, my illustrator is Irish. She That's lives in Ireland. Brilliant! I love it. So so kind of you. Do you have a copy there you can show us? I do. Yes. Here's Angelic Attendance. That's Beautiful. what happens when people are dying. What really happens as we transition from this life into the next. And then these are the children's books, Angel Messages for Dogs and Angel Messages for Kids. And um, my illustrator is a gal named Roz and she lives in West Cork. But look at these illustrations. I mean, they're just, she's really done an amazing job, I think. And it's, they're colorful and they are fun and they speak to the 
the parents as much as the kids. But I have so many stories about kids. One mom sent me an email not too long ago, and she said, my two-year-old, I had to buy another copy of the book because we had to have one in the bag that we take in the car and when we go somewhere because she wants to see it in the car and then we read it every night when we go to bed. Little children connect with it because it's about the angels. They know, you know, that they know. They know. I was going to say the exact same thing. Children just love angels. And I know with my children's meditations that people email me and say, my my child just kept asking me to play it over and over and over again. (laughs) But yeah, children get it and they have that connection. It's so natural and it's so beautiful to see it. Um, So I'm so delighted you have those books available. And as I said, we'll put the link in the show notes so people can go there and um, go to your website and get a copy of Angelic Attendance and contact you if they want to work with you. Wonderful. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. Um, Contact Julie if you want to find out more. And I will be with you in another couple of weeks for our next episode. Thank you, everyone. And bye-bye.